Welcome to the Feeding the Starving Artist podcast. My name is Rick Goodstein, and with me is my friend Ron McCurdy. How you doing there, Rick? And we have a special guest today. I'm yes, so excited to have our uh, very special guest, who we've known for years. Jeff Coffin is with us, joining us from Nashville, and it's stormy, so we may get a thunderbolt or two out of the sky, and that's probably something to do with your karma down there, Jeff. How are you? <laughs> very well, could be. <laughs> I'm doing great. Doing great. Thanks. Jeff, uh, we've known Jeff for a long time and a good friend of ours. And Jeff is uh, currently with the Dave Matthews Band. As you know, he's got his own band, Mutet, uh, was a longtime member of Bella Fleck and the Flecktones. Uh, won, what, four Grammys, I think, with uh, Bella? Uh, three with them, Three actually. with yep. them. We know you're on a quick break uh, before the Dave Matthews Band begins its West Coast swing on a tour. So uh, first of all, I just want to say congratulations on the, the new album, Walk Around the Moon. Uh, it's great. We, we've loved listening to it. T tell us how it feels to have the first album out after, what, five years? Yeah, it feels great. You know, it's, it's, um, it's rejuvenating in a lot of ways to be playing new music also. You know, you don't want to put the stuff out too quick as far as playing it. And there are a few tunes that we had been playing for the last couple of years. But getting the other stuff, and there's a couple of tunes that we're doing that that aren't on the record that we've kind of brought out of the archives that haven't been recorded before. So it's, it's nice. You know, I, I, I really love making music that's original. Got 22 solo records out of all, well, there's one standards record, but it's kind of deranged or dearranged. Deconstructed, <laughs> if it were. Deconstructed, <laughs> if you will, yeah. <laughs> um, but, I, but I really love making original music, and that was one of the great things about the Flectones, too. And another thing about the Matthews Band is that it's, you know, it's all original music. Every now and then there'll be a cover thrown in, you know, like uh, been doing a Zeppelin tune and we did a uh, we did Brick House also coming out of one of the tunes. And so every now and then there'll be different different combinations of things get, that get thrown in. But it's always it's always fun and interesting, some kind of, you know, whacked out arrangement of it or something. Yeah. Fun. So it's, but yeah, rejuvenating, I would say. And, and there's, man, there's mm. a tremendous amount of joy on stage, which, you know, we all feel and I feel like the audience is is really feeling it also you know the houses have been packed you know we're doing two and a half three hour shows i think the last show was maybe 310 yeah something like that <laughs> you know? not that you're counting anything <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> i mean not that we're waiting for it to be over but <laughs> it's great with, with jeff jeff rick and i started this this podcast uh a while back and in fact the three of us we, we have something in common we we were all part of the disney program in, in one capacity or another you, yeah. you and i were in the bands not together i'm, I'm a, i did probably 20 years before you did <laughs> and uh but we but we all had that that connection and while on audition tours rick and i would you know we would always talk about you know being an artist and the, the state of education and, and how could we make it better which is what inspired us to write the book and um, so our, the, the gist of our podcast is to figure out how can we help emerging artists really navigate the artistic landscape. And I, I think one of the things that we always look at for young artists, everyone, whether it be music, dance, theater, visual arts, cinema, they were inspired by someone. So I'd like to ask you, who was one of the early influencers in your career that sort of put you on a path to becoming the Jeff Coffin that you are, that you are today. Yeah. Um, well, you know, there were a lot of them. Um, my very first band director uh, from, from when I started in Maine, a guy named Arthur Legassi, 
you know, really, uh, really sparked my interest in the music. And, you know, really, ever since I can remember after the first year or so of playing, this is this is all I wanted to do. And, uh, you know, moving forward from there, you know, it was I lived in a very rural town in Maine uh, called Dexter, where our nearest movie theater, for example, was 40 miles away. <laughs> we lived on a dirt road on 40 acres of land up on top of this hill. It was remote, <laughs> but we had a great director. <laughs> and uh, so that's that's really where it started. I started to hear about guys like Tom Scott, even Boots Randolph. Uh, but Tom Scott yeah. was kind of my guy early on. Like I heard him and I was like, wow, I really love that sound. I've gone back and listened to it was a, a record called the L.A. Express, like a kind of a woman's torso with a belt buckle that had Tom Scott and the L.A. Express on it. And I just remember <laughs> it being super funky. So I, you know, I would just, I would listen to whatever I could listen to. My, my folks had a few records. They had some Ellington and they had one Eddie Harris record, Exodus to Jazz, where he's holding the <laughs> horn up in the air. And, and, and it was funny because for whatever reason, like that, that particular tune, Exodus, like for whatever reason, I heard it and I thought, well, that's really familiar to me. And I have no reason to to know why it just was mm. so that was one of the first tunes that i learned to play by ear and so you know some of the early influences were some of that stuff but i you know i was also listening to queen and zeppelin and you know pop music of the day but but you know people as i went along mentors that i had dave pietro has been a great mentor to me uh, over the years he's the head of jazz studies at nyu now and uh, mm -hmm. i was say he's the brother i never wanted um, <laughs> uh, but guys like you know at university of new hampshire guys like david seiler and charlie jennison um you know they were they were certainly you know pardon the pun instrumental in my development uh through the summer youth music school camps that, that they held there uh, my high school director doug patch also uh, was very influential but you know i would i would i would always be listening to music and and i found that you know, artists like Brecker and Sanborn, you know, eventually Coltrane when I finally sort of got it. You know, it was it was a lot of different things that I was listening to. And I think that that's one of the reasons that I do a lot of different things that I'm not I don't consider myself a jazz musician. I consider myself a musician. Mm -hmm. And uh, mm. so, you know, guys like Jim Riggs at uh, University of North Texas, other other players that were down there also who are friends, uh, certainly you know, as I got further into my professional development, my my most profound influences are the people that I've shared the stage with, and uh, mm -hmm. and, and and you know the the jam sessions and gigs, but primarily the people that I've toured with, 14 years with Bela and Victor Wooten and, and Roy Wooten, and uh, now 15 years with Dave Matthews with the band. It, there's been a lot of really wide influences on me, including you know people that probably didn't believe in what I was doing and uh you know struggles within that so it's 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 been a lot so I, i'm not sure i could say just one i think there's been many and i'm i'm very grateful for that there's a there's a long lineage behind me that that has really helped me do what i do you know rick also you know for for me being at the disney band that one summer you know that was a very influential time for me you know being able to 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 be there and do a gig and uh, and feel like i i you know had a place that i belonged in a group and I've and I've always loved being in a group. You know, mm -hmm. I, I don't I don't want to just freelance my way through a career. I want to be able to work out music with people 
that uh, that I really care about, who I feel are great players, who bring a certain vibe, like the, that coalesce in a way. So for me, there's there's no substitute for familiarity, and so the people that I that I play with and the people that that I still tend to bring in from the peripheral are all people that I really want to develop a relationship with. Yeah, Jeff, you probably don't remember this, but. At the end of the summer, we kind of do a, a download of everybody's experiences and have the opportunity to kind of help the next group come up next to you. But one thing you told me always struck me was that one thing that this summer taught me is that I don't want to do this for a living. That yep. playing the same that. gig night after night. You said he loved it. You never affected your performance. You're always great and fresh every night. But it did teach you. I remember that. And no one had ever really said that. This is something now I don't want to do. Yeah. No, it's it's interesting that you bring that up, Rick, because I've told that story many times, right? And so, and you know, and, and some people said, well, you know, you played with the same group for 14 years and then this other one for 15. I said, yeah, I said, but but the difference is, is that it's different every night, you know? Yeah. So with the Flectones, you know, maybe we played Big Country or or, you know, whatever, you know, 300 times when I was in the band. But every time it's different. And, uh, and, mm -hmm. and the, thing, the thing for me that I learned from Disney is that as, as much fun as I had, and it was the same on the cruise ship also when I was on there, I was like, I can't, I can't do this. I can't do the same material in the same way every day. You know, it'd be like me doing mm -hmm. a Broadway show. I'm just, I'm not cut out for it. I just realized that, and, and I'm glad I realized that early, but I'm also eternally grateful you know, for the Disney experience too, because it was incredible. I met great friends, one of whom I told you I just reconnected with after 35 years, and uh, and, and a bunch of the other guys. You know, we're still we're still in touch, you know, peripherally or or not, and uh, uh, or even closer than peripherally. You know, so yeah, it was. But but I I do remember that very well, Rick. It's interesting that you remember that too. Yeah, I do because it, it really <laughs> struck me. I said because everybody reaction who's in that band so, oh i want to do this where how do i sign on i want to do this forever <laughs> <laughs> sorry man. no it's okay you know i'm i'm curious about it. one of the goals of our podcast is to kind of help people find themselves find their career generate a sustainable career in the arts and you yeah. had you know you graduated if i remember like 1991 from unt 1990 90 and um and then you joined Flectones in 97. So there were probably right. some lean years in there. Kind of talk about maybe <laughs> yeah. your ability to, you know, figure it out. How did you make a living? How? Because that's what so many people are trying to figure out. How do, how do you make it until you make it? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that that's, that's something that, that really needs to be addressed in every program, especially because, you know, when you think about, and, and, and I'll get to this, but to, to, to jump back, in time a little bit in the early 80s there was something like 15 or so jazz studies programs in the u.s and now i think there's what upwards of like 500 mm. so every semester every, every you know every turnaround there's a bunch of people coming in into the profession who want to make a living doing what i'm doing and what a number of other people are doing but it's so saturated so you know there's not enough gigs so one of the things that I talk to my students about, is I teach at Vanderbilt, I'm going into my ninth year teaching there. And one of the things I talk to them about, even when I'm doing clinics, I'll say, okay, how many of you plan to do some teaching? You know, first of all, how many plan to be professional musicians? And, you know, they'll raise their hands. How many of you also plan to do a pretty fair amount of teaching? The number of hands will go down. 
I'll be like, no, 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 no. I'm up there. <laughs> I said, because you are going to be expected to, to do that. And you're going to have to do that most likely um, to kind of make ends meet. Now, somebody told me years ago that, that, and this kind of gets into sort of those lean years and even still to this day, how I sort of operate. Somebody told me years ago that, that if you can find four or five things that you're good at, that you can make eight to $10,000 a year at, you're going to be okay. You know, and, uh, and so kind of diversifying, but not diversifying in the sense that you don't do those things well, but it may, it may be, you know, doing session work, might be horn arranging, might be teaching live gigs, and, you know, maybe doing like Sibelius transcriptions for somebody, or whatever, you know, copy work, that kind of thing. So there's a number of different ways to, to approach that also. So when I first moved to Nashville in 1991, January of 91, I moved in the middle of the winter. <laughs> really and uh, I had just gotten off a cruise ship. I had gone out for about two and a half months and uh, paid off all my bills. So when I moved, I moved debt-free, completely debt-free. Didn't really know it. I knew one person in Nashville who was a second engineer. So I just started calling people. And it, it was very different then. There wasn't, obviously, wasn't the internet, wasn't cell phones. Uh, wasn't any kind of social media. So those things have changed uh, access dramatically to people. So if you're thinking about moving somewhere and you want to get in touch with somebody, you can get in touch with them and say, hey, I'm going to be moving there in a couple of months. We'd love to get together, blah, blah, blah. So the access is different. Basically, you have to say yes to everything at the beginning. You know, you, you've, you've, got to, you've got to move your way up through the ranks. You may come in blazing, but who cares really you know being able to here's here's the thing to be able to play your instrument at a very high level is not your calling card you know if you want to be a musician that's a given right that's that's status quo that's the starting line baseline that's baseline yeah yeah you better be able to play your instrument well <laughs> you know um so what is it that that gets you called back what is it that that endears you to whoever you're working with you know and it's I, I can basically put it into a couple of sentences. You can either be an asset or. <laughs> Forget this. I know where this is going. <laughs> this, this is a children's show, by the way. Right, this is a family friendly show, so we'll just let your imagination go. Like so, <laughs> so I say be an asset because everybody wants to work with an asset. No one wants to work with the other one. So, what does it mean to be an asset? Well, it means when you have an eight o'clock gig that you show up by 7.30. It means that, that you're prepared, that you've worked on the material if it's been sent to you. You're easy to get along with. You're, you're not vibing people out. You can play the parts. Um, you're prepared. You're not complaining about things. You're helpful. You know, if, 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 if at the end of the night, you know, the drummer's packing up their stuff and you walk by and say, hey man, thanks for the gig, that was really great. And you leave, that's fine. But what about this alternative? You walk by and say, hey man, Thank you so much for the gig. It was awesome. Had a great time. Let me give you a hand with your drums. There's no drummer in the world that's going to say, no, thanks. I got it. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's not that you're doing it to, you know, to kiss somebody's butt. You're doing it because it's helpful. You're a helpful human being, you know. There's a, a, a dear friend of mine who's a, a great uh, studio engineer named Nico Bolas. And Nico has recorded a, a, a few records that I've done and, works with the Mavericks a lot. He's, you know, 
everybody from Tom Petty to Jackson Brown, J.D. Souther, et cetera. So he has a lot of interns uh, come through his studios. And he said that there was there was one time when he had some interns and he said there was a great engineer. He said, one of the best I've ever seen. He said, but I was hiring somebody to, to manage the studio. He said, I ended up hiring this woman that was one of the three. He said she wasn't the best engineer. So the guy who he didn't hire that was the best engineer kind of got in his face about it. He's like, man, this is BS. I'm the best engineer here, blah, blah, blah. He says, yeah. He said, you are. He says, when's the last time you took out the garbage? He said, what? Hmm. He said, when was the last time you took out the garbage? He said, uh, you know, I don't know. He said, right. He says, that's why I didn't hire you. He said, because you would, you would walk by the garbage can, it would be full, and you wouldn't do anything about it. You would see that stuff mm. needed to be done, you know, little trash here, like recycling here, whatever. He said, I can teach somebody to be a great engineer. He said, but every time she walked by those things, she would do it. She wouldn't even ask. She would clean the kitchen, take care of things. So he said, that's why I hired her, because I can teach her to be a great engineer. He says, I can't teach those other things. He says, I can't teach you to be aware. So being aware of your surroundings, I think, is a really important thing. And so when when somebody needs something, it doesn't mean you have to like run over and, and just do it. But if you're able to help somebody, why wouldn't you? So that awareness builds relationships and uh, be, a helpful, be an asset. It's like the golden asset. rule all over again. And, you know, what would help you? Yeah. And it's just, yeah. yeah, it's just kind of simple common advice. But it's it's kind of funny how few people put it into that context. Right. And, and here's the thing, like you, yeah. you don't have to you don't have to give of yourself in a way that compromises you doing your job or you getting what you need. You don't have to sacrifice yourself to a point of going, oh, man, I'm just, you know, not able to get any me time or whatever. You know, you've got to take care of yourself at the same time. But there's always something that you can give. It's like if 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 somebody comes to my house whenever, you know, and I grew up this way. My mom is full full Sicilian, seven kids in her family. Um, they grew up on a farm in Massachusetts. And no matter who came by, they always got two things. They got a hug and they got food, everyone. Mm. And it didn't matter how much there was, they would get it. And so nobody ever left without getting some kind of sustenance, you know, spiritual, holistic from the hug, and then with the food also. And, and I feel that way too, man. When, when people come over, I, I'm kind of like my mom in that sense. I'm like, you know, what can I get you? Can I get you, you know, some tea or some food or, you know, hang or, you know, whatever. And, and I'm a hugger also. That's just, that's just who I am. And, and everybody's different, obviously. But, but these relationships that, that people develop, these are lifelong relationships. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, yeah. and I think that in, in, if, if I can break it down to one thing that's helped me have a career in music, it would be that. It would be relationships. And how important it is to uh, also have a network who you can call on or they can call on you and there's a trust there. They know what you're going to get. Absolutely. And that's something mm-hmm. that's so important in this world because it's so competitive and we have so many uh, things that could stand in our way. But having that network yeah. so you are, uh, I think trust is just be- the best way I can put it. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Like, like, for example, we have a, we're having a jam session over here tomorrow. Brad Lely is going to be in town with Lyle Lovett's band. He's coming in a day early, mm. so we're going to have a session here tomorrow. And so nobody has to bring it. As you can see, nobody has to bring anything. I've got keyboards. I've got amps. Mm-hmm. I've got drums. If somebody needs a bass, I've got one. And, uh, <laughs> and so rather than having people come over and just you know call a bunch of standards or 
you know, me just bring a bunch of tunes. I'm like, everybody brings a tune and we play it and, and we work through mm -hmm. it and, and we try it. And uh, it's a it's a super fun way to to not only hear other people's music, but to to work on it with different players also, because uh, you never know what you're going to get. Some of the stuff might be like really challenging and some of it may be pretty, pretty straightforward, mm -hmm. but it gives everybody an opportunity to sort of have their moment with everyone else. And, uh, and, and I love that. You know, I don't want to just play my music. I want to hear what everybody else brings to the table. Let me ask you a question about uh, how you organize the band. My, my colleague here, uh, Bob Mincer with Yellow Jackets. Who? They are a... <laughs> no, I met Bob. By the way, I met Bob for the first time at Disney. Yeah, he did a that clinic was, for us. Right? Yeah, oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah, he yep. did. And I, got I got a lesson with him, and I still have the cassette tape of that lesson. Yeah. Wow. He's just, he just turned 70, and he's still doing oh, it. Man. So he's, he's still playing and teaching and... Yeah. But, but but he he tells the story about how the how the jackets how they are a, a leaderless band. Hmm. In other words, there's no guy who's who's calling who's who, who's calling all the shots. He also said that when someone brings in a tune, the tune becomes property of the band. Hmm. In other words, if all of a sudden Will wants to do wants to change the groove or make some kind of a modifications to it, he'll do that, and the group will decide, yeah, that, that sounds great, let's do it. Or if Russ say this this chord progression makes a little more sense, or this is a little more a little hipper than what you brought in. There are no egos involved. How yeah. does that work with with uh, with 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 uh, with Math Dave Matthews's band, and also even with with uh, with your group, Mutet? Yeah, well, um, it, it kind of comes back to something when I first joined the Flectones. Baylor was really great. He would always encourage me to bring in original music because he knew that I wrote a lot, and uh, and he he liked my tunes, and so we work work we. we we would work on them together quite a bit. And uh, I remember one of the first things that I brought in, I was kind of like, well, you know, Roy, it's kind of this groove and Vic, it's sort of this vibe, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and so after, after the jam, well, not really a jam session, but our sound check, we were kind of jamming on the tune. Bela pulled me aside. He said, hey, just, you know, just a suggestion. He said, when you bring your tunes in, he said, you already have an idea of how you want them to go and you're not going to lose that, right? He said, but you've got one of the greatest bass players on the planet, one of the greatest rhythm, uh, one of the greatest drummers. He says, and I'm no slouch harmonically. He said, so, you know, allow us time, sort of get to your tune. Like allow us some time to, to figure it out because chances are pretty good. We're gonna bring something to the table that you hadn't expected. And you may like it more or you may like it less. If we're going in the wrong direction, then you can kind of steer us back a little bit. He said, but, but allow mm. us to sort of basically like kind of like trying on the clothes rather than just saying, here it is, wear this. It's like, well, it's not so comfy. You know, let me, let me try this and see what happens. And so that opened me up immediately to really working on things and spending time with music and see how it, how it susses out. Now with Matthews, it's a little different because a lot of times he's bringing in tunes that he's already written. And then we sort of augment them, you know, with horn parts, with this, that, the other thing. But he's really good about uh about giving people credit on tunes also i think there's six tunes on this this record that the whole band has credit on you know so he's mm -hmm. really good about that also because what we bring to it whether it's horn parts or solos or this that or the other thing they become sort of these hooks in the tunes it's almost like on dark side of the moon i can't remember the woman's name when when she's singing great gig from the sky she's doing this whole melismatic thing and it's just chords underneath it but what she brought to that you know 
she had to sue to get the rights to that eventually because she was like this, this wow. is you know i improvised mm. it it's it's still me this is what makes the tune it's still mine right you know mm-hmm. and so I, I think that's a really beautiful thing with the jackets yeah when when you know when i'm doing my groups whatever sort form or faction of it that i'm doing i'm all, you know if if other people are bringing stuff to the tune then absolutely you know it, it becomes that and so there's a lot of there's a lot of co-writes on on the stuff that I've done over the years also sometimes it comes out you know it, it's already flushed out and it's not a co-write and and again it's it's you know it's arguable you know whether somebody changes a groove or a baseline or whatever that you know they're not part of the composition of the tune so yeah I mean I, I, th- I think that through Bela and through Dave I, I feel pretty generous with how I divvy that up also if somebody comes up with a part I'm like well yeah that's their part. So I, I think that, that when you're working on music also, well, for example, in some of my tunes, I don't have, there are times where I don't have chord changes written out. I'll just have a melody. And, uh, and, and so we'll kind of start to draw things out of there. And those become co-writes. Sometimes I'll have stuff, and sometimes things will get changed, and those will become co-writes. If I need a new section, someone comes up with it. I'll sometimes do that also. So it's, it's kind of a variety of ways of, of working on that stuff. But I think that the greatest gift the musicians I work with on, on my material have ever given me is the gift of collaboration. You know, that they're willing to work on the music because they like the music. And, uh, well, they tell me they do. And, <laughs> uh, and so we work on it together. And, and, and because of that, they have more of a vested interest in the music. It's like they're creating it at the same time. Mm-hmm. So they're involved with the process of not just opening up, but kind of birthing this idea, this, this mm-hmm. uh, holistic approach of creating, of improvisation, of groove, feel. Um, how does it affect somebody from the heart? And so I learn a lot from that because every, you know, everybody has a different idea. And, and I'm all about workshopping stuff. Even at Vanderbilt, I work with the top combo there. And so I, I don't ever bring in material. I'm like, you guys have to write all of it. Because it's the top group, and I'm going to teach you. I'm going to teach you and treat you like you're autonomous, like you're a professional band. And so, at the beginning of the semester, they all have to bring in two tunes, you know, one per week. So by the end of last semester, they kept writing and writing and writing. The small group had 47 tunes. Oh my goodness! 47 original tunes or arrangements. And they were playing their tails off, man. You know, and and listening to them. Sometimes I'll be like, well, what if we added a bar here? It needs a little breath. You know, what can we do here? What if we, you know, did this with the horns, like pyramid the horns or this, that, or the other thing, you know? And so get them to really start thinking about the process of not just writing the tune, but how is it being presented? How is it being realized? Just some really fundamental, like getting them to listen, basically. Getting them to listen in a Mm -hmm. way that that is a little bit more objective, even on their own tunes. Recording it, listening to it back. That's how you can be objective with something. And uh, for me, like I was working on something yesterday with these African drummers that are in town. And, uh, and I spent a bunch of time, you know, putting some horn parts down. I was thinking, well, that sounds pretty good. I listened to it in the, in the car on the way over to dinner with some friends last night. And I was like, oh, this is awful. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I, you know it, it just wasn't moving me. And I was like, ah, okay, whatever. You know, but that, but that's my perspective. When I listen to it outside of the studio, for whatever reason, I'm a much more objective listener than when I'm in the middle of it, recording it, coming up with ideas. You know, 
because that's the creative part. Step outside of it, sometimes I'm like, oh, yeah, I mean, this is going to be killing. But I know some of the things I have to fix in it after I listen to it also. And and I remember years ago when when we would be in the studio with Bela, I would ask him, I'd be like, well, how, you know, how do you know, you know, what parts are are the right parts and how it all fits together? And he said, I can't really explain it other than this. He said, I feel in my body like a click. Like when you set something into something else and, and you turn it and it clicks, it like it fits, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. He said, I just know it. He said, I, I just feel that. And he says, then I know that it's right. And, uh, and, mm. and I kind of get that. I have a different feeling that I get, but it takes, it takes me getting out of the studio to figure that out. You know, to feel it in a different way, to hear it in a different way. It, it almost sounds like you have to let it marinate for a minute. Yeah, yeah, you have to get away from it a little bit and then come back. And uh, and sometimes I'll forget that I've written something. I'll come back and be like, oh, what is this? And I'll listen. I'll be like, oh, that's really cool. Or back to the drawing board. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I always tell people, you know, my m most of my pencils don't have any erasers. I'll still have most of the mm -hmm. pencil, <laughs> but the eraser is gone. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jeff, we are, uh, amazingly, we're about out of time for today, but I hope you'll join us next time uh, to continue the conversation. Yeah, sure. This has been Feeding the Starving Artist podcast with Rick Goodstein. And Ron McCurdy. And Jeff Coffin. Thanks so much for listening, and uh, stay tuned. We'll uh, be back with Jeff next time. Thanks, everybody.